Look, the last few weeks have probably been killing some of you, all right? Um, we've been talking a lot about, I've been talking a lot about grace and mercy over the last few weeks. And uh, some of you have been asking questions in your heads, I'm sure. Like, what about the tension between grace, God's goodness and kindness toward us, and obedience? Like, how does that work? And some of you probably been thinking, sure, God's gracious and merciful and salvation uh, him saving people is his work, but won't that make people lazy and passive? Isn't that what happens when you just talk about grace all the time? People just get lazy and they get passive. How does obedience and good works actually fit into that? Well, some of you uh, will be relieved by today's passage. But by the end of it, I hope that you're relieved for a different reason than you are now, if you feel like you're going to be relieved by someone talking about works today. So let's read the text. If you've got your Bibles there, I'd love for you to open up to Ephesians 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 8. So Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, through trusting. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. And that's the bit some of you are going, excellent, at last. <laughs> we we get, to, uh, get to talk about works. Well, I've been doing object lessons lately. And I've got another one. So uh, I just my beautiful assistant Matt's going to come out. I'm kidding, all right? Don't, don't, I don't think he's beautiful. I appreciate him, but I don't think he's beautiful. Now, here's, uh, here's the way that uh, grace, God's kindness to us, and works, obedience often gets cashed out, right? People actually use the term, it's attention. And not A-T-T-E-N-T-I-O-N. T-E-N-S-I-O-N, right? Attention. There's a tension that goes on between grace and good works, grace and, and obedience or good works, okay? Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Have you had those, com those conversations before? And it's kind of like, I'll, I'll just, I'll put myself in the doghouse here, right? Imagine I'm works, good works, and Matt's grace. And you go, amen. That's, that's a good comparison, right? And what we actually say, what, what we're kind of saying by saying there's a tension is that they kind of pull against each other. And sometimes uh, good works can pull a little bit too far this way and then grace needs to pull back a little bit, all right? And then sometimes grace can pull a little bit too far that way and then we've got to go, oh, okay, let's just pull, pull back this way in the direction of good works, okay? Everyone know what I'm talking about? Thanks, man. The problem with attention and using the terminology of attention is that it's wrong. That's what's wrong with it. It's actually wrong. It's actually not a biblical understanding of grace and works. And the reason why is because what you actually conceptualise while Matt and I were pulling on the rope against each other is two separate entities. You've got grace and then you've got works and they kind of pull against each other. And I want to suggest to you today... I'm going to get to this a little bit later on. People who use the language of grace and works probably are trending in the direction of being religious. 
because the Bible doesn't actually describe it that way. It doesn't describe it as two separate entities that pull against one another and keep someone in check. The Bible doesn't see them as being separate. Here's where we're going today. It's basically, I've, I've written a sentence and I've split the sentence up into three. This passage that we're looking at today is all about works. Here it is. Not by our works, but because of God's work, do we do works. All right? That's, that's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10. Not by our works, but because of God's work, do we do works. Let's kick into the first one. Not by our work. Uh, you, we, re- we just read this. Verse 8 to 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Listen not the result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Think about the words, if you've got your uh, Ephesians 2 open there, think about the words that Paul's used just even in this chapter. Verse 1, dead. Verse 3, children of wrath. Verse 5, dead. Verse 5, God made us alive. Verse 5, by grace you've been saved. Verse 6, raised by God and seated with him. Verse 7, grace and kindness toward us. Verse 8, grace through faith. Verse 8, not your own doing. Verse 8, a gift. Verse 9, not the result of works. You're doing no work in this process. Okay? And even if you look at that scripture up on the board there, uh, up on the screen, when it says, and this is not your own doing, he's saying the whole saving work, the whole package is not your own doing. You're doing no works to actually bring that about. Now, that is true. But who knows that humans do a lot and they work very hard to be accepted. Don't they? Like if if I say to you today, not by works. You don't get favour with God by anything that you do, like nothing. Over the whole of your life, you don't get favour with God by doing anything. It doesn't matter whether you come to faith and you receive Jesus and you trust in him as a six-year-old and you live till you're 96 those 90 years, it's not about doing things to impress God. It's not about doing things to get acceptance from God. It's not about any of that. You came in without doing anything impressive. Who can put their hand up and say that? I came in and I did nothing impressive. And I can't do anything impressive on my own, in my own flesh for the rest of my days. Now, here's the thing, right? This is simple. This is really simple. Like, if you look at Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, this is, like, this is not rocket science, right? My six-year-old can work this out. My seven-year-old, sorry, can work this out. It's not hard. Probably a three-year-old can understand it. So what does humanity do with something really simple? We make it really complex. <laughs> of course you do. You know, this is like the wife saying, why, to her husband, why do you have to do it that way? That's like way harder than just, does anyone, anyone know what I'm talking about? I have to do it because I'm a man, all right? And we make things harder than what they actually are by not reading the instructions. We make things complex. And who knows that when you look across our world, that both within the church and outside of the church, there is an ongoing drive within humanity to be accepted. Absolutely it is. 
I mean, you look at every... Christianity is unique. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you need to know today that Christianity is unique from every single other religion in the world. And you know what the difference is? The difference is between do and done. That's all the difference is. Every other religion in the world is do. You've got to do, 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 do to be accepted. Christianity is going, no, it's already done. Everything got done in Jesus. You don't need to do anything to be accepted to God, by God. There is a striving for acceptance through works outside the church. And you'll never find grace outside of the church, outside of Jesus, like you get it with Jesus. Uh, about a week ago, a Jehovah's Witness knocked on my door. And uh, I always enjoy having a yarn and uh, really appreciated this lady. I think she was a really gutsy lady. She talked about how difficult it was for her to go knocking on people's doors. I went, yeah, I reckon it is. I've done it before and it's, 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 it's a challenge. And I was right in the middle of preparing a message on grace. And so I asked her, I said, how do you, how do you feel about grace? Do you, are you absolutely 100% certain that God loves you? And that it's not about what you do? Because everything I've heard about the Jehovah's Witnesses is it's about what you do. And she was the first one that ever actually said yes to that. And I just thought, man, I'd love another hour with you to actually drill down into that and see whether you actually believe that or not. Because you know what? You don't get this kind of grace anywhere other than in Jesus. Amen? You just don't. You don't get it anywhere. But you know the tragic thing about humanity is uh, we don't just have religions that are about doing things to get acceptance. We actually do religion in the church. Don't we? Know what I'm talking about? We do religion in the church. That's what we do. I mean, if you go to, the, uh, to Jesus in the Gospels, his most heated confrontations were with church people. It, it was kind of like you go to the people who are messed up, who, who can't kind of get off the bottle, and who maybe were prostitutes, and in a complete mess, and he went up to them and they kind of went, yeah, yeah, I am a mess, can you help me? And he went to the religious people, and this ought to just make us hesitate just a little bit. He went to the religious people and he had the biggest barnies with the religious people. You know, a lot of Jesus' talk about hell was aimed at religious people. Have you ever noticed that? I want you to come across and uh, read a story with me, a parable of Jesus from Luke chapter 18. So if you can just flick back a few books, Luke chapter 18... And I tell you, if you can read this as someone who goes to church without a chill going up your spine, there's something wrong with you. Because <laughs> this is scary. This is a really scary story that Jesus tells here. Luke chapter 18. We're going to start at verse 9. Jesus also told this parable, this story, listen to this, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, that's what you do. When you do religion, you know what you do? You get arrogant and everyone else, you just, I'm going to get to this in a minute, but you split people into good people and bad people and you're the good person. So you get proud about it and you look down on other people. Verse 10. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. All right? What's Jesus done? He's grabbed people at two ends of the spectrum of his day. All right? A vile, traitorous tax collector and a Pharisee, a church guy, a church leader. A church leader who cares about the law and about doing things right. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you. Now just pull up there. He's not even saying, self, I thank you, you are so great. He's actually thanking God. And this, this should actually give you pause to pull up a little bit and just go, this is actually really dangerous. I could actually be saying a prayer that thanks God for something, but in my heart I could actually be being religious. Do you get what, get what I'm saying? Like this is the bit, that's the bit I just go, like a chill better just go up your spine at that point. All right? Because i tell you one thing that's true about the religious people in Jesus' day, they didn't think they were religious. None of them did, which is why they kept arguing against him. It is so incredibly deceptive. Listen to what he does. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Listen to his moral things that he's doing. I'm not an extortioner. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this guy, this tax collector. And then he goes on to his religious observance. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who got justified? I'll tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, the Pharisee was still trusting in himself. He wasn't looking away from himself. Even though he was talking to God about it, he was still trusting in himself. On the other hand, the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes up to heaven, but cried out, God, would you have mercy upon me? I'm a big sinner. When was the last time that you were on your knees crying out like the tax collector? Is that something you do once in your life? Religion is a big problem because religion relies upon your works. And Paul in Ephesians 2 is saying it's not about your works. You cannot please God with your works you cannot curry good favor with god through your works you can't do anything helpful through your works and if you think that you can do something through your works you've become like the devil all right because and because you just end up proud that's why the devil got kicked out of heaven because of pride okay so when you drift into that place you're drifting into a very very dangerous place let me just push in a little bit more on religion religion says, if I obey God, he will love me. That's what it says. See, redemption, on the other hand, God's grace toward you says, God does love you. He has loved you. Like, how weird would it be with my seven-year-old kid if I went up to my seven-year-old kid this afternoon and I said, Joel, here's the deal, mate. Uh, I've come up with a list of 150 things that you need to do. 
And if you do all of those things, I'll be your dad. That's what religion does. Religion says you do all these things and you'll get favour from God. That's not how God works. And you need to know today, in the deepest, hardest of hearts that you've got, he doesn't work like that. He forms relationship. There's rules, I guess, in a sense, in the relationship. There's principles by which the relationship operates. But he doesn't form relationship based on your works or what you do. That would be weird. Like if, we, if God was like that and he said, I've got a list of 150 things that you need to do and then you can be my child and I'll be your dad, that's a perverted family, isn't it? God doesn't run a perverted family. He's got a good family and he's a good dad, so he doesn't do that. The second thing, religion says the world is filled with two kinds of people, good and bad people. And how do you know who the good people are? You know what the answer from a religious person is? They're like me. They're like me. And the bad people aren't like me. I remember when um, I was a kid, we were on holidays at Calandra, and uh, my parents had very strict rules about what we could do and could not do on Sundays. And I remember we pulled into this car park on a Sunday and uh, a shop was open. And lots of shops are open on Sundays now, but back then, not that many shops are open on Sundays. And do you know what I thought? I didn't even verbalise it. I thought, those are bad people. And I'm, I'm one of the good guys. That's religion. That's religion. You know, my mum and dad came up to me in the last 12 months and they repented to me for teaching their children religion and not relationship. Do you know what redemption says? Redemption says that there's one kind of person in the world, bad people. <laughs> That's what it says. And everyone's bad. We're all bad people and the only good pers person who ever lived is Jesus Christ. And so there's only two different types of people within bad people, those who have repented and those who haven't. Those who have turned around from where they're going and those who haven't. And you know what? Here's the thing. Who killed Jesus? Religious people. Religious people. Be careful. Even in this. Be careful even in this. You know what I've heard from people before? I've heard this lots of times in the church. People say, yeah, like I'm, I'm a really bad sinner. I'm imperfect like everyone else. But they've used it in a way that gets some kudos. It gets some brownie points. And I go, okay, give me some details. <laughs> That's what I want to know. Don't just go on to say that because in the church, when you say that, that's a way of getting righteousness in front of other people, isn't it? It's a weird thing, but that's kind of what we do in the church. Religion is about rules before relationship. And it's often about making rules up as you go. I was listening to a preacher on this one. He said, just because you've got a Bible doesn't mean you can keep writing it. But that's what religious people do. They just write more stuff in it. There's more rules. There's more stuff that you've got to do. There's long lists. It's all about what you do and you don't do. It's not about Jesus and what he's done and how he's formed relationship with you. It's about rules. Here's, a, here's, a, here's the next thing. Who knows this? Religious people are not very happy people. And they're actually not very nice people to be around. Because they don't have any joy. There's no 
joy when you're religious. Why? Well, how could there be? Your whole life is lived by a whole bunch of rules and you've got to comply with them and you've got to be careful not to blow it. Here's the thing, religion only leads to pride or despair. If you think your works get you somewhere, you will probably never be a humble person. You'll either be arrogant and proud or you'll be despairing. Why? Because you can't keep up with the rules that you're trying to live your life by. You'll either think that you're better than everyone else or you'll be honest with yourself sometimes and say, I can't even keep up with the rules that I've set for my own life and you'll be despairing. Are you religious? Do you know what I reckon? Yes. I think I am. Am I religious? Yes. Is it the main thing about me that God's created? No, it's not. Is it the main thing about you that God's created? No, it's not. But it's there, right? What if you got disconnected from everything that you felt or you feel makes you acceptable? What if you couldn't do it anymore? What if you couldn't do your job? What if you couldn't talk anymore? What if you ended up in a hospital bed for a long period of time? Could you be okay? I... Uh, listen and read quite a bit of David Powlison and he had a uh, I think he had heart bypass surgery and he went on medication, he's a counsellor and um, he uh, he had an operation then he went on this medication after it and you know what the medication did is it he couldn't string a whole sentence together now think about that He's a counsellor. He spent his whole life counselling and now he can't string a sentence together and he didn't know that it was a medication. He thought there was something wrong with him. And so that he was confronted with the reality that that could be it. What does that do? What if you were disconnected from everything that you lean on to make you acceptable? Not our works, but because of God's work. Verse uh, 10 there, it specifically says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Do you know what this is? That is someone's workmanship. A bunch of people's workmanship. But do you know what? This is not workmanship in the way that God does workmanship. Okay? Do you know what our workmanship is, our creativity is on this planet? It's simply rearranging things, very skillfully, but it's only rearranging things. 
When you go back to Genesis 1, you find out that God didn't rearrange things. God brought something out of nothing. That's creativity. All right? That is creativity. And Paul wants you to know in Ephesians 2 verse 10 that you are God's workmanship. And God is a very, very skilled and experienced craftsman. Isn't he? Isn't this good news? We reshape creation. He creates it out of nothing. We are his masterpiece. His creative work. <clears throat> you know, that word uh, created there in Ephesians 2 verse 10 is the same word that is used in Romans 1, I think, verse 20 um, to talk about God's creating of the world. So think about that. All of God's creative energies that got poured into creation at the very beginning got poured into recreating you. Now, can that Ferrari create itself? I can't, right? It's not a trick question, by the way. Some of you are going, uh, he's got some way he's going to be able to do this. So I'm watching Sherlock. <clears throat> it can't. Because before it exists, it didn't exist. <laughs> okay? You, you can't create yourself. You, you are, if you love Jesus and you're part of his family, you are his work of creation. You are a new creation. You know, we say things like someone's a self-made man. I mean, even if you go outside of what God's done to bring people to faith in him, no one's self-made. There's nothing on this planet that you haven't borrowed, that you're not a steward of. Everything that we have and we are is from God. I mean, God gives a warning to the Israelites back in Deuteronomy 8, 17 to 18. When you get in there and you get all this cool stuff, don't think that your work got it for you. Because even if you did do some work to help it to happen, God actually gave you the strength to do the work. You know, there's a sense, one commentator actually said of this, uh, this verse here in Ephesians 2 verse 10, actually translated it as, uh, we are God's, not workmanship, but his poem. So, man, that's, that's interesting. We are a truly creative work of God's. And do you know something? If you can create yourself by deeds or by works, it's not grace anymore, is it? It's not a gift. Not by our works, but because of God's work, do we do works. Works don't earn anything. Here's the thing. Here's what Paul's saying. Works are actually the result of a new creation. This is exactly what happens. You know, I've got mango trees in my backyard, right? And you don't go up to a mango tree and just go, what on earth is a mango doing on a mango tree? Do you? Who put that there? You just go, no, that's what happens. Like you stick a mango tree in the ground, it has good soil, and you water it, and the sun shines on it, and what do you get? Mangoes. This is what Paul's saying. You have God come in and recreate someone and make someone, new, someone a new person again. What do you get out of them? Good works. That's just what happens. It's like whack-a-mole, right? Have you seen that? The things pop up and you've got to try and hit the thing back down. That's how it works. When you become a new creation, you're actually someone who does good works. You're doing what a true human does. 
And what kind of works are you doing? Well, if you look at verse 10 there, you can see that we're doing the things that God's prepared for us to do. So let me ask you this question. What does God want you to do today? He's prepared good works in advance for you to do today. So what does he want you to do? Well, here's the thing. Some of you go, I don't know. Or you think if he's prepared them, he might just let you know what they are as they come along. And maybe it's not even that fancy. Maybe it's even we've just got a whole bunch of good information in the Bible about the kind of things God wants us to do and we'll just get about doing those. We don't really need, in inverted commas, a massive big Holy Spirit leading to just get about the things that God's told us the good things to do. True? And we don't do them to earn acceptance. We do them because that's who we are. It's like we say to our kids, I've got a job for you to do. That's what God's saying. He's going, I've recreated you. You're a masterpiece as a result of a master works, workman. And I want you to go and do these things. I mean, it'd be really doughy and cheesy and corny. But you could say to people, I'm on a mission from God. Because you are, right? And so today actually isn't about what you want to do. That's not what it's about. You're a new creation and it's about everything that God's organised for you to do today. I don't know what that is, exactly. But I know he's made some, he's organised some stuff for you to do. I remember one of the fathers of the church here, Ted Hitzke. I remember talking to him shortly uh, before he died. And um, one of the things that would pop up every now and then whenever I talked to Ted is uh, when we're talking about, no, he had like a dozen tumours in his body and he'd had heart attacks and broken his back and he just had, basically from 2000 to uh, when he died a number of years ago, was just a chronicle of brutal realities that he lived through. And you know what he used to say? He used to go, well, you know, I'm uh, here until I've done everything God wants me to do and then I won't be here anymore. And that's how it played out. He died. Why did he die? He died because he'd done all the things that God asked him to do and it was his time. I think that's a good perspective. What sort of things does God want us to do? Well, Galatians 5 verse 6 says he wants to see faith working itself through love. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 15 says uh, that one of the things, like the key thing, one of the key things God wants you to do is do good to everyone. So do you do that? Is Paul in uh, 1 Thessalonians. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Colossians 1 verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Can everyone just duck across with me in your Bible? 2 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 8. I want you to see this with your own eyes here. <clears throat> Because this, I, wanna, I want you to see the connection between grace and work here in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8. Listen to this. And God is able to make all what? Grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every what? Good work. Do you see that? It's like, it's not like God saves you and you become part of his family and then you've got to sit down and work out all the resources you've got to do good works. 
God's going, no, what I'm actually going to do is I'm going to fill your tank up with my grace and then it's just going to come out of you. How could it not? Like seriously, some of you could smile right now. How, how, could, this, how could this not happen? Like if God is that gracious and that good to us, how could you actually not get to the point of just stuff just flowing out of you? You just go, whoa, how did that happen? All right, sorry, man. I, I blessed you then and I wasn't even paying attention. <laughs> Wouldn't that be good? It's like, because I think it already happens, right? Because God's grace is like that. It has that kind of energy and that kind of momentum. It's like, man, there's people all around me receiving good from me and I can't even control this thing. This is out of my control. That's the nature of the grace of God. We get about doing good. Now, some people in uh, church history have said that Paul and uh, James have, uh, have been in disagreement about God's grace. So let's just quickly have a look at James 2 and then I'm going to wind us out for the day. Down toward the back end of the Bible. James chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 14. I want you to see, and I'm just going to read a few verses here. I want you to see that Paul and James are in complete agreement. James chapter 2, starting at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, I'm pretty good at that one, bless you, brother, uh, praying for you. Um, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. What's James saying? He's saying the same thing as Paul. If you've been made a new creation, you have works that go along with that. If you don't have works they go along with it, your faith is dead or there's some really significant problem. It's on life support, okay? Because that's how it all rolls. So here's where I want to finish. What does it look like? I'm just going to do this really quick and these are massive theological uh, realities. So you, um, I'll, I'll give you the names of a few books and you can read some more about them if you like. And some of them are big books. All right, so I'm, I'm just, what am I saying? I'm saying I'm not going to do them justice by just going over them in the next five, ten minutes. What does it look like when grace inspires works? Well, here's the thing, straight off the bat, it's not going to be as driven, is it? It's not going to be as intense and it's not going to be as anxious laden when grace actually inspires and drives the things that I do. And I want to just give you a couple of things from the scriptures to kind of hang this on. Can you go across to John 15 for me? Gospel of John. <clears throat> so John 15 verse 1 there. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Okay, go, go down with me to, uh, to verse, actually I'll just keep reading. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Listen to this, verse 4 and 5. This is a key bit. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. When you are in Christ... When you are abiding in Christ, you cannot help but bear fruit. So then the reverse, if I'm not bearing fruit, what does that actually say about functionally whether I'm actually walking with Christ? Do I have communion with Christ? Am I actually in relationship with him? You see, if you're not producing good works and you say you're a Christian, you're either not a Christian or you're not abiding in Christ. And do you see here, this is not a pressure thing. Like, Jesus is not saying you've got to go out and do good things and then you'll prove that you're abiding in me. He's saying, no, if you actually walk with me closely and we're in communion and fellowship with one another all the time, what will happen? Good, good fruit. It will happen. Like, it's like, and it's not like you've got to make it happen. It just happens. It comes out of being in communion and in fellowship and in relationship with Jesus. Let me ask you the question an obvious one are you bearing much fruit at the moment now what will happen sometimes for some people when you ask that question is they'll go i need to go and bear more fruit which is not john 15 is it john 15 saying if i'm not bearing fruit if i'm not bearing much fruit i mustn't be very close to jesus so i need to go and get closer to jesus Because if I go and get close to Jesus, I'll bear good fruit. Like, don't get that the wrong way around. Some of you go, well, what is this good fruit that you speak of? Well, we could just start with this one. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control. Paul wasn't saying Galatians that those are fruits of the Spirit. He said they are the fruit of the Spirit. So when you do those, when when you're walking with Christ, you will grow in all of those areas. And I think one of the, uh, one of the little kind of, places that we get tripped up and kind of tricked a little bit is people look at a list like that and they go, well, I think I'm doing okay at peace at the moment. That's not what Paul's saying. When you abide and you have communion with Christ and you abide in Christ, you will grow in all of that fruit at the same time. So it doesn't make any sense, according to what Paul's saying in Galatians 5, to grow in joy, peace, patience and kindness but not to have goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Because Jesus does all of that when you walk with him and when you're in relationship with him. Good works are a byproduct of being in Christ. Pardon me while I cough. Number two. Good works are done for the joy of it. (laughs) 
when you've been made a new creation, good works are done for the joy of it. And you can go to, uh, John Piper's written a whole book on this called uh, Desiring God. I think the subtitle is Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. A Christian pleasure seeker. You know, Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, when grace changes you, you love God's stuff. And you do God's stuff because you love it. It's not a forced thing. You actually know that being in God's presence and being like him is the best thing that could ever happen to you Ever. To be close to him, to walk with him, to have him change your behaviours in a sense so that you operate the way that he operates. It, you get a kick out of it. You guys know the story out of the parable out of Matthew 13, 44. You know, Jesus told the story there was a treasure that was hidden in a field and a guy accidentally bumped into it, found out that it was in the, in the field he found it, he covered it up, he's got a few question marks about the ethical responsibility of uh, passing the information on to the owner, but let's, let's uh, skip over, to the, uh, over that bit. Listen to what Jesus actually says in that story. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. He's pumped about it. He hasn't got a bum deal, alright? It's a great deal. All right, let's just, I don't care. I'll give away everything I've got because the joy of having that treasure is better than anything. And this is what grace does inside of us. This is the way that grace, another way that grace produces good works because we love it. Because of our joy. Because of the happiness that comes from obtaining the things that God has for us. Now let me ask a couple of questions here. Do you long for the presence of God? Do you? Have you had a time in your life, maybe it's near, where you felt like you were really close friends? Did you have a time in your life where you, just, you were able to lay hold of the the, the wonder of him being your father and you being his child? Did you have a time in your life where you knew he had your back? Is that now? See that, if you've had one of those moments, it's better than anything, right? You get in that moment. Maybe it's a moment that you even came to faith where you decided to trust in Jesus. And you just go, that I would have given anything. I gave up everything in that moment to have him. Do you know what that is? God is our greatest delight. Do you long to be enriched by him? Three. Here's another one you can uh, read of John Piper's. This is a big book. It's called Future Grace. You know, basically, here's the big idea. We obey and we trust in God because he promises to give us everything that we need in the future. Everything. And so Piper, in his book, goes through all these different areas where we can distrust God and where we can find it hard to follow him, kind of do what he's saying. 
And then he kind of responds, well, here's a biblical promise that God promises to be kind to you in the future, so let's move toward that. Let's move toward God's supply and his kindness. One of the ones he talks about is when I feel too weak to do the ministry that I'm engaged in, he remembers 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9 where Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see that? When you're weak tomorrow, the promise that God gives to you is that there will be grace for you tomorrow in the future. So when the pressure's on and you feel like blowing out, you go digging in the scriptures for God's promises because they're all yes in Jesus, all right? And you go looking for him and you just go, I'm going to be okay tomorrow, not only because God has said yes to all the promises on the cross, but because I know he's coming through in the future. It's actually going to happen. You're lured forward by God's provision in the future for you. Not to pay him back, but to get further in debt to his goodness and his strength. And that's the way that he would have it. <clears throat> Last one. What does it look like when grace inspires works? Well, it looks like a hunger for more grace. Can you... Um, Duck over to Matthew 5 for me. Let's just have a look there. Matthew 5. I mean, we could read a stack of this section. I'm just going to pull up uh, just early in, in chapter 6 there. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. So I'm just going it's a good plan, right? <laughs> like, let's do that. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Listen to this question that Jesus asks here. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Now, just catch what he's saying. If you love people who don't love you, you get a reward. And like we kind of sit here and we go, why? Like isn't it just enough that we're saved? <laughs> that God saves us, that Jesus dies on the cross. And Jesus is going, no, no, I've actually got more stuff for you. All right? So if your obedience and your works need to be turbocharged by my grace a little bit more, here's what I'm going to do. If you actually do things that I'm asking you to do, I'm going to reward you for it. How cool is that? Some of you are going, like, is this like fun size M&Ms? All right? It's going to be better than that. All right? There's no cavities in heaven. That's going to be, there you go. I've just made a categorical statement. Verse 46 there. Do not even tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you notice what Jesus is saying here? He's providing an incentive to obedience. He's going, you need to be perfect and I'm going to give you a gracious incentive. I'm going to be kind to you in a way in the future if you're obedient to me. Chapter 6, verse 1. 
Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Listen to this. Jesus comes straight out and says it. For then you'll have no what? Reward. That's all you get. So if you get up and you just practice your righteousness in front of people, Jesus is going, that's the only reward you get. And I'm just t- that's a pretty sucky one. All right, let's just say that. Because the opinions of people are pretty fickle. Okay, and you can do something, they'll be impressed one minute and then they won't be the next. Jesus is saying don't do things for the opinions of other people because you'll miss out on the reward. Not because you're meant to be obedient, which you kind of are, but God's way more helpful to you than just saying you're meant to be obedient. He puts fuel in the tank of obedience and good works.